All right, Exodus chapter 9, Exodus chapter 9, we're going to start in verse 13, and if time allows, we'll try to make it to verse 35, uh, which is the end of the chapter. This is, in fact, the longest uh, plague account so far. It will be, uh, the only one longer would be the 10th plague, right, the Passover itself, that's given more ink. But up till now, this is the longest record of one of the plagues. And uh, this is going to be our thought flow as we work our way through it. We're going to see that this plague, the seventh plague, the the plague of hail, is going to actually have uh, one of the longest prefaces as well, where God is going to begin the plague with a theological preface, uh, an announcement to Pharaoh. And we're going to see that verse 13 to 19. God, of course, is going to allow through that preface, he's going to warn them that the plague is coming, allowing them the opportunity to respond in faith and obedience, which some of the Egyptians do so, uh, and some do not. That's verses 20 and 21. Then we'll see, of course, Yahweh sending the plague as he promised, verse 22 and 26, and then Pharaoh's response in verse 27 to 35. All right, so there's our thought flow. Uh, but let's go ahead and read the text, and then we'll, we'll subdivide it, you know, take it a chunk at a time. So if you got your Bible, Exodus 9 verse 13 says, And the Lord said unto Moses, Rise up early in the morning and stand before Pharaoh and say unto him, Thus says the Lord God of the Hebrews, Let my people go that they may serve me. For I will at this time send all my plagues upon your heart, upon your servants, upon your people, that you may know that there is none like me in all the earth. For now I will stretch out my hand that I may smite you uh, and my, your people with pestilence and you will be cut off from the earth. Verse 16. And in very deed, for this cause have I raised you up, for to show in you my power, and that my name may be declared throughout all the earth. As yet, exalt you yourself against my people, that you will not let them go. Behold, tomorrow, about this time, I will cause it to rain a very grievous hail, such as hath not been in Egypt since the foundation thereof, even until now. Send therefore now, and gather your cattle, uh, and all that you have in the field. For upon every man and beast which shall be found in the field, and shall not be brought home, the hail shall come down upon them, and they shall die. So there's your theological preface. That's the the announcement of the coming plague. Verse 20 and 21 then says, He that feared the word of the Lord among the servants of Pharaoh made his servants and his cattle flee into the houses. And he that regarded not the word of the Lord left his servants and his cattle in the field. Verse 22, And the Lord said to Moses, Stretch forth your hand toward heaven, that there may be hail in all the land of Egypt, upon man, upon beast, upon the herb of the field, throughout all the land of Egypt. So Moses stretched forth his rod toward heaven, and the Lord sent thunder and hail, and fire ran along upon the ground. The Lord rained hail upon the land of Egypt. So there was hail and fire mingled with the hail, very grievous such as was none like it in all the land of Egypt since it became a nation. And the hail smote throughout all the land of Egypt that was in the field, both man and beast. And the hail smote every herb of the field and break every tree of the field. Only in the land of Goshen, where the children of Israel were, was there no hail. And Pharaoh sent and called for Moses and Aaron and said unto them, I have sinned this time. The Lord is righteous, and I and my people are wicked. Interesting words from the mouth of a Pharaoh. Uh, short-lived, to be sure, but verse 28, Entreat the Lord, for it is enough that there be no more mighty thunderings and hail, and I will let you go, and you shall stay no longer. Moses said unto him, As soon as I am gone out of the city, I will spread abroad my hands unto the Lord, and the thunder shall cease. Neither shall there be any more hail, 
that you may know that, uh, how, that the earth is the Lord's. But as for you and your servants, I know that you will not yet fear the Lord God. Interesting commentary. Moses <laughs> sees what's coming, right, in his reaction. But verse 31, then we have a little uh, editorial notation, uh, which helps us actually chronologically place the account. But it says, verse uh, 31, And the flax and the barley was smitten, for the barley was in the ear, and the flax was bold, or bold. But the wheat and the, the rye, or the spelt, depending on your translation, were not smitten, for they were not grown up. Verse 33, And Moses went out from the city, from Pharaoh, spread abroad his hands unto the Lord, and the thunders and the hail ceased, and rain was not poured upon the earth. And Pharaoh saw that the rain, when Pharaoh saw that the rain and the hail and the thunders were ceased, he sinned yet more, and hardened his heart, he and his servants. And the heart of Pharaoh was hardened, neither would he let the children of Israel go, as the Lord had spoken by Moses. All right, now, uh, again, as I mentioned a moment ago, this seventh plague account is the longest of the plague accounts in the book of Exodus uh, so far. Now, it will be, uh, you know, they'll, they'll, it will be matched and, and exceeded by the tenth plague. But nonetheless, we, we, this is uh, one of the longer accounts that we'll have in the plague narrative. Now, again, it starts in verse 13 by saying, rise up early in the morning, right? The Lord is giving Moses the, the command that recall, we see this, this is the, the beginning of that third triad, right, that we, that we talked about so much, where the, these the, uh, groups of three plagues will, will sh- follow a similar pattern. Well, we see this in the first and the fourth plague, this, uh, this command to rise up early and to, uh, to go and warn Pharaoh. So he's about, again, he does it uh, in commandment or in obedience to God's command, and this begins the third cycle of the plagues. And so he goes to confront Pharaoh with the Lord's message, which, of course, begins this theological preface from verse 13 to 19. And we'll see that uh, this, this is, and again, we'll talk about it a little bit more in a moment, uh, the, the flax and barley thing that I mentioned a moment ago. But <clears throat> that gives us a chronological marker when it tells us what uh, stage it was in the, the crop process. But... We can place this account in the early days of February, and we'll see that from here till the 10th and climactic plague, then there, there's going to be about a month between here, but, uh, you know, we'll, or uh, a couple months at least, uh, a month to two at the most, uh, because the, it can be anywhere from February, early February to March that they would, would harvest the, the flax and the barley that's here, you know, described as being destroyed. But then we know, right, that because uh, when the 10th plague happens, it's Passover season, right? And that's, all, that's April, typically. I mean, you know, in our calendar. It can switch months because they follow a lunar calendar. But nonetheless, um, it's, we're, we're looking at at least a month to two months uh, between these events. But, but it also helps us realize overall, the, the overall plague narrative, again, is probably we're looking at four months-ish, three to five, you know, months-ish. Uh, you know, that's why four months is kind of the, the round number people normally give for the entirety of the 10 plagues that takes place, probably about a four-month period. But nonetheless, uh, he shows up, Moses that is, to go and warn Pharaoh. And again, to further underscore the theological significance of these weeks and their events, Moses was prompted by God to preface his latest announcement of divine judgment with a long message that is filled with doctrinal instruction. Uh, There's actually a lot of, of important points that Moses is making in this initial speech. 
And again, this unprecedented message was calculated to move Pharaoh and his subjects from rebellion to belief in the God of the Hebrews. So it's very appropriate that he begins with this, th- this long theological preface, which is essentially a warning, and then verse 20 and 21 record the response to that. Right? He's giving them an opportunity to respond. So that's you know, one of the functions and purposes of the speech, the preface. But what does uh, God say to Pharaoh uh, through Moses? Well, again, it's interesting that uh, if Pharaoh had retained any doubts about the purpose of the plagues up to this point, he had no reason to be uncertain any longer. Verse 13 and 14, uh, Moses begins by reiterating the, uh, the purpose of these plagues, right? He announces verse 13, thus says the Lord God of the Hebrews, let my people go that they may serve me. There's the repetitive command. For he says, verse 14, for I will at this time send all my plagues upon your heart and upon your servants, upon your people, that, here's the big, you know, uh, we see this phrase what, about a dozen times throughout the Exodus uh, accounts. But he says, that you may know that there is none like me in all the earth. And so again, we're going to see this uh, here repeated in verse 14, the purpose of the plagues, namely that the world might know, uh, you know, typo, I'm supposed to say Yahweh, not your way. Don't you love computers? <laughs> My spell check didn't catch that till now. I just caught it. <clears throat> yeah, so Yahweh. But nonetheless, uh, I do find this ironic. I just keep your finger here. Go to Psalm 106 real quick. Um, and I, I think I've, I've alluded to this, but it's been a while. It was all the way back in our, I think our introduction to the book of Exodus, which was so far back, we don't even remember it, right? <laughs> but in Exodus uh, 9, is telling us the purpose of plagues. But this is reiterated in Psalm 106, and, and this is, it's interesting because, again, over and over and over again, God is telling them throughout the Exodus account that the purpose of the plagues, one of the purposes, is for God to make himself known in all the earth, that the world might know who he is. And yet here is an interesting account in Psalm 106. It's a psalm rehearsing the history of Israel, but it makes an interesting comment in verse 7. It says, our fathers understood not your wonders in Egypt. They remembered not the multitude of your mercies, but provoked them at the sea, even at the Red Sea. And nevertheless, he saved them, and on he goes. But notice, as he comments on that Exodus generation, that though they were delivered, though they witnessed the plagues, recall this, it says they did not understand the wonders in Egypt. Which, what's the point of that? Well, it's not that they didn't witness it, they saw it, right? They experienced Uh, The first three plagues themselves, recall that. They've been witnessing the plagues, but they didn't get the message of the plagues. They didn't get the point, right? Because the the point of the plagues was so that Yahweh would be known in all the earth, that he would be feared, he would be followed. And yet, we see in Psalm 106, I was just recently, this morning in fact, reading uh, Ezekiel 20, which reaffirms the fact that even those Israelites who came out of Egypt in the wilderness, or uh, in the Exodus, and, and followed the Lord in the wilderness, they retained their idolatry. Many of them did. And so it's, it's interesting that though this is the purpose of the plagues, that God would reveal himself, uh, this, and he does that. He's obviously known, but the point of being known is to be followed, to be believed, to be trusted. And even Israel uh, failed to do that, the majority of them. But also note verse 14, back to Exodus 9, verse 14. It says that God is going to level the plagues upon his heart. Which is, again, this is a, it's, it's kind of a, it's a new way to phrase it. It's an emphatic way to underscore what God is doing. But he's, he's pointing 
these plagues that he's, he's going to level upon Egypt against the heart of Pharaoh. Now, again, don't forget that in uh, you know, Egyptology, Egypt, Egyptian religion, this is highly significant. The Egyptians believed that Pharaoh's heart was the all-controlling factor in both history and society. Right? The, the heart of the king. Remember, and we talked about the hard heart a little bit uh, last time even. We've talked about it several times. Uh, the, the heart of Pharaoh was seen as this all-controlling factor in history and society. But now, the king of Egypt's heart is hardened against the Hebrews, and Yahweh assaults his heart to demonstrate that only the God of the Hebrews is the sovereign of the universe. Right? So in other words, it's more Egypt, uh, Egyptology sort of lingo when he says, I'm going to bring these plagues against your heart. Right? In other words, I'm going to humble proud Pharaoh, and I'm going to expose you as the false god that you are. And that's what he's, that's what he's getting at. Well, he goes on, verse 15. Uh, this verse points out that the earlier plagues, and again, some translations draw this, uh, this out better than other translations, but what verse 15 seems to be getting at is that the earlier plagues, as hard as they were on the Egyptians, they were actually examples of restraint since God already could have sent at any time a fully destructive plague to eliminate the Egyptian population entirely. In other words, reread verse 15. He says, For now I will stretch out my hand, that I may smite you and your people with pestilence, and you'll be cut off from the earth. Right Now some will translate that, like the King James, you will be cut off from the earth. Uh, others will say, uh, the idea is you could have been cut off from the earth. In other words, I am showing restraint by the fact that you're still here, right? In other words, there's uh, what's, what seems to be getting, verse 15 seems to be getting at, is the idea that as bad as it is, you know, God's saying, you know, you ain't seen nothing yet, right? I mean, it's, it can get way worse. God is, in fact, the fact that the Egyptians still are in existence is a display of God's mercy, his long-suffering, his grace. But, nonetheless, he says uh, that he, he can, wipe them out. And he's going to bring this plague in order uh, to, again, display himself to the ends of the earth. Verse 16 says, in the very deed for this cause have I raised you up for to show in you my power, right? That my name may be declared throughout all the earth. And again, the whole idea of this plague is that God is in control, that he is going to display himself and his power so that he is known in all the earth. And we've talked about this many times, but God is allowing the hard heart of Pharaoh and then even aiding the hard heart of Pharaoh. Recall the previous plague is where that swapped. Remember that? By the time we get to plague six, we actually see it goes from Pharaoh hardening his own heart to Yahweh now hardening Pharaoh's heart. That was chapter 9, verse 12. Right where Yahweh is now the one hardening Pharaoh's heart. And the whole point of this is he's grandstanding this. God is bringing about a situation where he can be magnified. Now, again, I think it's interesting. It, it mentions here that the word earth, and uh, again, that comes across a little bit. It's uh, funky. The computer doesn't like Hebrew words. <clears throat> so it doesn't like Hebrew lettering. So that it's supposed to be Eretz in Hebrew. But the point is the word earth or Eretz in Hebrew appears... Uh, in three verses, in this section, verse 14, 15, and 16. And this passage is a call to the whole world to appreciate that the plagues ultimate, what the plagues ultimately show, that there is one God in control of all things and that he alone can save. Now, what's interesting is we just read Psalm 106 that says that the Israelites failed to fully grasp and you know, understand the purpose of the plagues, namely to know and follow Yahweh. 
But what's ironic is you contrast that with 1 Samuel 4, 8. You remember this? 1 Samuel 4, 8, just pop over there real quick. <clears throat> I think I got some time. I'm going to squeeze this in. Again, I, I, I've recapped this in a number of different scenarios. I would love one day, I'm going to do it before I die. I'm going to teach through 1 and 2 Samuel. I love these. Oh, yeah, I can't wait. I want to get through the whole Bible, but nonetheless. Uh, this, is, this is an excellent section. But it's one of my favorite little uh, stories where the Ark of the Covenant was stolen. Remember this? The Philistines steal it. They have battle with Israel, and they steal the Ark of the Covenant, and then they want to get rid of it. Well, before they capture the Ark of the Covenant, like when they are facing Israel in battle, do you remember this? It says uh, that, well, I'm kind of jumping in here, but Israel was smitten, verse 2, before the Philistines, right? The first day of battle, Israel gets beat up a little bit. So they decide to fetch the ark. That's verse 3. Well, when the ark is brought into the Israelite camp, they, they cry out a big victory shout, right, as they receive the ark of God. But verse 6 says, The Philistines heard the noise of the shout, and they said, What means the noise of this shout, this great shout in the camp of the Hebrews? And they understood that the ark of the Lord had come into the camp. And the Philistines were afraid, for they said, God has come into the camp. And they said, Woe unto us, for there has not been such a thing heretofore. Woe unto us, who shall deliver us out of the hand of these mighty gods? These are the gods that smote the Egyptians with all the plagues in the wilderness. Remember this? And then, of course, they give the Philistine pep talk. Be strong. Quit yourselves like men. Right? Now, remember, quit yourself. Quit is an old English word. It means prepare yourself. It doesn't mean stop trying, right? I mean, that's kind of a funny translation when we read it in modern English. You're like, be a man and quit. No, that's not what it's saying. It's, it means prepare, man up, right? Go to battle. That's the idea, all right? But nonetheless, notice that the Philistines, it, they remember the, the plagues in Egypt. That's the point that I want you to see in verse 8, right? They remember, and they're now terrified that Yahweh has come to the battle, right? That's what they're afraid of. And, uh, of course, you know, Yahweh has plans and purposes to allow Israel to be defeated and <clears throat> because he's got to kill Hophni and Phinehas like he promised he would, right? There's all sorts of cool narrative stuff going on. But the point is, that illustrate that verse illustrates, and remember, this is, we're looking at probably, I mean, there's eh, a little bit of debate on the timeline, but we're looking at least two, maybe 300 years bef- between the Exodus and that battle of Aphek right there in First Samuel chapter 4. And the point is, the Philistines, you know, they remembered what God did in Egypt. So did God's desire to make himself known through the Egyptian, you know, the plagues upon Egypt, did, did that happen? Yes, it happened. You know, and, and here we have a couple centuries later, the Philistines, they remember it, and they're afraid of Yahweh because of it. So that's the purpose. So God reiterates this to Pharaoh, verses 14 to 16. But then in verse 17, he emphasizes, uh, again, that it's Pharaoh's refusal to let uh, the Hebrews leave Egypt. That's, again, the, the purpose of all of this, the, the reason why the plagues are continuing. And he says, he asks a bit of a rhetorical question here. He says, essentially, why are you continuing to exalt yourself against my people? Right? And you will not let them go. And <clears throat> that phrase in particular, the idea of exalt yourself or setting yourself up, uh, is a reflexive participle. And it means to exalt yourself. And the idea is, is this verb is going right to the heart of the matter, if we can put it that way, that Pharaoh is playing the deity. He's exalting himself against the Holy One of Israel. He's playing God. He's lifting himself up and saying, hey, that he's the one who has the power to decide the fate of the Hebrews. 
And Yahweh is simply pointing out that that is why the plagues are continuing, is the pride of Pharaoh who has exalted himself against Yahweh. And Yahweh is going to humble him and bring him down. So then, verse 18, Yahweh announces that the hail is coming. He says, Behold, tomorrow, about this time, I will cause it to rain a very grievous hail, such as has not been in Egypt since the foundation thereof, even until now. Now, let's, let's contemplate the hail uh, you know, plague for just a second. Why hail? And some of the phraseology here, that this has not been seen in Egypt since the foundation of it, even until now. There's some interesting significance in that phrase. First note that the nature of the plagues changes in this sequence. Uh, they now have to do with weather and matters of the sky, right? In other words, as we're watching the various realms of the Egyptian pantheon be addressed and attacked, right? We've seen the Nile, it's been attacked, right? We see the cattle, they've been attacked uh, with the, the pestilence. We've seen, you know, the, the locusts, etc. But now we're, we're starting to move to the weather patterns and we're starting to see the area of the sky come under attack. And there's a ton of Egyptian deities associated with the sky, sun, moon, stars, weather, right? Thunder, hail, well, not hail, as we'll say in just a second. But one interesting observation about this is that, again, back to that, remember that we, we spent a little time when we introduced the 10 plagues, that many of your critical scholars, that is those who want to deny the historicity of the Bible, particularly the miraculous nature of the Bible, those scholars will argue that the 10 plagues, is, they're, they're just natural phenomenon, right? And they're all linked one with another. Well, if they're arguing that, their arguments really uh, start falling apart when you get to this. In other words, uh, the, those who are arguing for natural progression of the plagues stumble at this point. The hailstones of the seventh plague have absolutely no relationship with the boils of plague number six. Right? In other words, th th these are supernatural plagues directed by a sovereign God. They're not merely natural phenomenon uh, that are happening. Right? Because some will argue that it was like, uh, you ever heard that theory? It was like the eruption of uh, a volcano that may, you know, that happened maybe the same one that that wiped out the Minoan civilization, right, in the Mediterranean Sea, and that it just caused all these weird weather patterns, and, and that's what actually the Ten Plagues were. Um, there's, and there's several other theories. That's one of the pet theories of the critical scholars. Um, but, the, again, those theories just start falling apart when you look at the, uh, the sequence of events, and, you know, they, they, you can't have a natural explanation for all of these things. Well, here's an example of that. But it's also significant that God is sending hail, and as he points out, that this has never happened before in Egypt. In fact, uh, it doesn't hail in Egypt. In fact, uh, you know, in, in, within recorded history, Egypt not only receives no hail, it hardly ever receives rain. Even today, the city of Cairo only gets about two inches of rainfall annually. And in some places, particularly in southern Egypt, uh, they get no rain at all in the course of a year. And so this drastic storm is, of course, going to be supernatural. That's the whole point. And he says it's going to be something that Egypt has never seen before, he says in verse 18. Now, again, let's talk about that just a second. That phrase not only highlights the intensity of the storm by the statement that such a hailstorm has never been seen in, the, uh, seen in Egypt since its inception, but as one particular scholar, guy by the name of Casuto, uh, I think is how you say his name, He's pointed this out, that that phrase, that this has never been seen in Egypt before since its foundation, uh, this reflects a common Egyptian expression that was in use in that time. 
Pharaohs, such as Thutmose III, for instance, would assert that they had done something greater, quote, than all the things that were in the country since it was founded, end quote. Uh, in other words, that this was a common idiom to talk about something great, something awesome that's never been seen before. Stewart goes on to point out how the Egyptians were enormously proud of their long history as a nation. And they thought of all uh, other peoples on the earth as newcomers, or as Stuart puts it, Johnny-come-latelys, automatically inferior to the Egyptians. Why? Because the Egyptians viewed themselves as the original and central civilization of the earth. Now, it's interesting <clears throat> that if you back it up and look at it from a biblical perspective, Egypt is one of the oldest nations of the earth, right? And I'm not going to digress on this. I, I, uh... Give me two minutes. All right, but go back to, you know, just in your mind, go back to the Table of Nations, right? Tower of Babel. Well, when they split, you just start thinking about how those nations, you know, how nations developed, right? The people groups, because we don't know what the population was, right, when, it, when they split, and how large those people groups were when God split the languages, right? Uh, they were apparently at least family units because they could continue to propagate, right, and fill the earth, but there was probably, you know, at least clans, tribes, perhaps, you know, we don't know the size of the people groups. But what happened is that, you know, when you go from the uh, plain of Shinar, because the Bible tells us where that happened, right, plain of Shinar. When you go from there forward right, and out, right, if, if that's like your, you think about a pebble in a pond, right, and you throw it in, the ripples go out, the, cent, the epicenter is plain of Shinar. But then you start tracing civilizations that sprout from there. So your first Great civilizations are the ones that claimed the best land the fastest. So, Mesopotamia, right? That's right. Plain of Shinar is right there. Mesopotamia, land between the rivers, Tigris, Euphrates rivers. That's the cradle of civilization. The, your first great civilizations happen right there. Well, then, what are your other great civilizations that start? How well you know your history. Remember this? Egypt, the Nile River Valley. It's all your big river valleys, by the way. So you have uh, Mesopotamia. Land between the rivers, great civilizations start there. Why? Fresh water, they can grow crops, right? They can build cities. Civilizations begin to prosper. But if you are one of the, the, the people groups that's not as strong as your neighbor, and your neighbors, you know, kick you out, and you have to migrate, well, then you maybe have to migrate to the Taurus Mountains, past the Taurus Mountains, maybe end up somewhere in Europe or far east, you know, in Asia. You're right? Exactly. So there's your other big ones, Indus River Valley, Right? Uh, was, was another big uh, civilization that started early on. But, but those civilizations start later. Why? Why? Well, because you've got to migrate. You've got to get there. Right? You're getting a late start. Does that make sense? In other words, there is some truth to this, that Egypt is one of the oldest nations in antiquity. But they prided themselves as being the original civilization. Right? That no one, and, and again, in modernity, we tend to, to prize things like youth, things like, you know, the latest, greatest, cutting edge invention, whatever. In antiquity, it was rather the, the opposite. They, they tended to view the new things as suspect and the old things as more revered, more something trustworthy, because it's been around a while, stood the test of time, right? So, and things that were ancient were considered as, you know, they, were, they had more respect, considered as, as greater. So the point is, you know, this phrase seems to be attacking even the identity of the Egyptians, that he says, hey, 
uh, you know, this, this you've never seen. In other words, wait, Egypt's been around the longest. We've seen everything. Right? But Yahweh says, no, nah, you ain't seen this yet. Right? In other words, there's something that even the Egyptians have never seen. I'm going I'm to show you something spectacular and supernatural. So again, that's the whole point, is that God is going to bring this upon the Egyptians. Well, he announces it, verse 18. So then he gives them the warning, verse 19. Send now, therefore, and gather your cattle and all that you have in the fields, for upon every man and beast which shall be found in the field, uh, that shall not be brought home, the hail shall come down upon them, and they shall die. So he gives them the warning. Verse 20 and 21, then, records how the people respond. Right? He that fears the word of the Lord among the, uh, the servants of Pharaoh made his servants and his cattle flee into the houses. But he that regarded not the word of the Lord left his servants and his cattle in the field. Now, again, it, this, we, we clearly see that God warns them of the coming plague, gives them an opportunity to respond. There are some, according to verse 20, that do respond positively, that it says explicitly they feared the word of the Lord. Now, there is a debate about this verse, whether this reflects an actual conversion of Pharaoh's servants. In other words, are they now followers of Yahweh? Uh, we do know that some Egyptians did become followers of Yahweh. Right? We see them later on in the wilderness period. We see them in the genealogy sections, later in Chronicles, etc. Uh, there were Egyptians that left Egypt to, to join the Hebrews. But nonetheless, uh, the question is, were these people responding in verse 20 because of genuine faith in Yahweh, or were they merely believing the warning because this is the seventh plague, right? And every warning has so far that, you know, that's been issued has God's true to his word. And so they're simply reacting and they're acting accordingly. Uh, so again, we, we can debate on this, but I think it is interesting that the fear of the Lord, or here the fear of the word of the Lord, which is a similar idea, um, this is a very important expression, not only later in the book of Exodus, this is what God is going to try and bring Israel to, right? The Israelites, the Hebrews don't genuinely fear the Lord, quote unquote, or at least it's not described, you know, in that way until we get to the Red Sea crossing. It's after when they're after, you know, on the other side of the, of the Red Sea and God wipes out the Egyptian, you know, pursuit. Then it says they feared the Lord and Moses, his servant. Right? Then they, they finally received that, you know, attitude that, whoa, maybe we should trust Yahweh. He's genuinely in charge. Um, and it's, it's, it's kind of interesting to see that. But that, and that's really one of the whole points of the, of the uh, you know, the plagues, etc. And we'll see that this becomes, of course, a huge theme in the book of Deuteronomy. Uh, Deuteronomos, right, the second law, when Yahweh uh, gives, he wipes out that first generation uh, that, that rebelled against him, wipes them out in the wilderness, and then the second generation is getting ready to go in the, in the promised land. And Moses gives them a set of pep talks, that's the book of Deuteronomy. And what, but what's he trying to get across to that second generation? What must they know, right, and believe? Well, he says, you got to fear God, you got to keep his commandments, you got to cling to Yahweh. And he, and he actually points to the previous generation. Don't be like your fathers. Uh, it's, it's pretty profound. But nonetheless, we, we do see, according to verse 21, that though some did respond in faith and they hid you know, their, their servants and their cattle, according to, verse 20, according to verse 21, there were others that did not, uh, and perhaps it's the majority, that did not respond to, to the, the Lord's word. Rather, their hearts remained hardened like Pharaoh's heart. Uh, to the truth and reality of God's proclamation promises to them. Uh, and so again, it's interesting that, again, the heart of the matter is always the heart, as I like to say. 
but they would not listen to the Lord. In fact, it says uh, later, in, I don't know if you noticed this, but in verse 34, when we read the text, when it describes Pharaoh's hard heart, it also tags on the phrase, he and his servants. See that final phrase there in verse 34? Is the idea it's not just Pharaoh, but also his servants, which is probably a reference to his immediate cabinet, right? That is those people. We're going to see them in dialogue in the next chapter. In chapter 10, verse 7, we're going to see the servants of Pharaoh turn to Pharaoh and give him some advice, right? It's probably his cabinet uh, that's specifically being addressed there. But it may well include, you know, because it could be a general word for the Egyptian populace at, at large. Um, but I think it's interesting that even though some respond in fear, it says they fear the word of the Lord, and they obey by, by you know, bringing their goods and you know, their cattle and servants to safety, Notice Pharaoh, uh, I'm sorry, Moses' response as he's leaving Pharaoh's presence in verse 30. He says, but as for you and your servants, I know, what's he say? That you will not yet fear the Lord God. All right, I think that's interesting. In other words, this is after several have already responded in faith, right? They bring him in, you know, they bring in Moses and Aaron to say, hey, please entreat the Lord that the hail stops, etc." But then Mo- Moses says, well, all right, I'll go pray and I'll, you know, God will stop the hail, but I know that you don't really fear God yet, right? In other words, he, he sees what the reaction would be. Yeah, kind of. Sure, sure. No, and that's and that's a legitimate point, which again makes you question: Was this a genuine conversion or not, or was it just simply a fear, not really a, a faith or a loyalty to Yahweh per se? Absolutely, because I think there, and whether it was here or later, right in the tenth uh, plague, or even along the way, I think it probably was happening, you know along the way at various points, there were some Egyptians that do convert and they leave with, with Israel in the Exodus. But nonetheless, I think the majority of them rejected Yahweh, and as, as is pointed out even, even by Moses, right? After this plague goes down and even he hears the confession of Pharaoh, he still walks out saying, you guys really don't fear God yet. <laughs> in other words, you know, and he knows, right? Because God's already told Moses that there's going to be more plagues, right? So it's not over yet. Yeah. So I don't, that's, uh, that's a good question. The text doesn't say, but I've wondered the same thing. Like, in other words, you know, you start thinking about the, the sentiment of the Egyptians against the Hebrews, like back in chapter one, right? This, this sense of racial superiority that we Egyptians, right? We're going to enslave the Hebrews and they're, you know, but then when you see some of these Egyptians start swapping sides, right? Or at least listening to the word of the Lord, I can imagine in just a society, a culture at large, that when you start going against the majority sentiment, then you get, you know, persecuted or ostracized to a degree. Cancel culture, (laughs) right? They were just canceled, (laughs) right? And I mean, the text doesn't say that explicitly, but I, yeah, I would imagine that that had to be the case, you know? Yeah. Yeah, and maybe for the people that are more living Personally, 
you know. Exactly. And, you know, still control. <clears throat> That's exactly right. I'm, I'm, uh, I'm going to make that point a little bit more in the next chapter. But that seems to be what Pharaoh's servants are, are arguing in chapter 10. When they turn to Pharaoh and they say, you know, you just let the guy go. Like, let, get rid of these people. Because don't you realize the land is being destroyed? In other words, I think Pharaoh, to a certain extent, is insulated from the worst of what's going on. But his people are languishing, right? I mean, his country is falling apart. And so the commoners, who are really bearing the brunt of it, are trying to say, dude, wake up, man. Like, we cannot keep going this way. Maybe that's why some of them did try to hide her, you know. Like... <laughs> yeah, I think so. But, but that's the whole point, is, right, Yahweh is starting to weaken the foundation of Egyptology, right? All these, this, this pantheon of Egyptian gods that was so feared and revered and everyone was loyal to him, you know, but they're starting to question, wait, man, Yahweh is really powerful because, you know, we're praying to, you know, Ra and Anubis and, you know, Osiris and, but it's not working. Like Yahweh just keeps pummeling, pummeling us, you know, go ahead. Well, I was just reading about hail because it's been heavy hail, so I was like, okay, what does that mean? They say like normal hail Okay, so, uh, yes. Let me, yeah, no, it's okay. You stole some of my thunder, but that's okay. Pun intended, because we're talking about a storm. But, but no, let's jump into that, because this, I think, just try and envision this for just a second. Think about the significance of the storm. First, we just talked about the religious significance. It's critical to remember that the Egyptians believed their gods to be, pers- the, to be personified in the elements of nature, right? So this is a huge deal, uh, that the catastrophe of the hail was therefore a mockery of the Egyptian heavenly deities, including uh, Newt, is how you say that. Uh, it's not nut, but <laughs> it looks like nut in English, but it's newt. Anyways, the, the female representative of, this, uh, of the sky, personification of the vault of heaven. Shu, the, res- uh, the supporter of the heavens who holds up the sky. Tefnut, the goddess of moisture. And that's just listing a few. But the point is, these are various gods in the Egyptian pantheon that are here being attacked. They're being humiliated. Um, but... Let's talk about the hail itself, all right? Just pragmatically speaking, coming, building off some of uh, uh, Bob's comments. So fatal hailstorms occur uh, often around the world still today. The largest, I thought this was interesting. I should ask Talon about this sometime. Apparently, the largest re- occur in Northeast India. In fact, the worst on record occurred in 1888. 240 people were killed. Hundreds more were injured uh, by hail in Moradabad. I think that's how you say it. Um, but again, we see hundreds of destructive hailstorms occur every year and in virtually all parts of the globe. Another example is there's a single hailstorm that killed or injured 400 people in Germany in 1984. Also, a storm in China's uh, Henan province killed 22 people and injured 200 on July 22, 2002. Uh, in modern times, hailstones as large as one kilogram, that is 2.2 pounds, have been measured. And hail falls at, uh, you know, it has been recorded at falling at more than 50 meters per second, or that's 111.82 miles per hour, all right? So, yeah, it's like a cannonball that's, yeah, going 100 and, yeah, uh, 11 miles an hour. So you start thinking about how devastating that could be. And, you know, and, and again, I mean, he's saying not only that it's never happened in Egypt because Egypt doesn't receive hail, but... 
you, it, it just makes you wonder, like, how devastating actually was this? How big was the hail? Right? But it says it was a great storm that levels the crops, that wipes out the trees. I mean, it's like, yeah, a barrage of cannon fire wiping everything out. Yeah. Hail that size could be approximately seven inches in diameter. Seven inches? Oh, that's right. You just talked about that in Joshua class, didn't you? Yeah. Ah, <laughs> Grapefruits of ice. Yeah, imagine that. Yeah, or cantaloupes. Well, but I like, I mean, I like the cannonball illustration. I'd have to look up the feet per second on that when what it fires at. But, you know, but you, I mean, you start looking at a barrage of cannon fire and how it'll, it'll wipe out for us. I mean, I mean, it's, it's, it's impressive. Uh, I don't know. I hadn't thought about that, <clears throat> but it makes you wonder, like the poetic justice side, yeah. right? Well, that's interesting, right? Because they were making, they were having to go and uh, yeah. grab stubble, right? Uh, and they had to fetch their own stubble to make bricks. And God's like, well, let me just turn your whole land into stubble, right? right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. God's going to help out his people. You still need to make bricks? No problem. Here's the stubble, right? I'm just going to wipe out all their stuff. <laughs> yeah. Yes. So it's a grain. Exactly. Uh, some translations will translate it rye. Yeah. Or spelt. And I'm, I'm not super agricultural to tell you the difference between those two. But So is, is rye and spelt two different things? Okay. Okay. But it's a grain. Yeah. It's a grain, like barley or wheat. Yep. So, and I, and I think it's interesting. Uh, in fact... Uh, <clears throat> let me just jump to that real quick because this is kind of an interesting aside. In verse 31 and 32, it tells you that, you know, and it seems totally random, um, but, you know, there's probably several purposes to this aside when it tells you the flax and the barley was smitten, uh, but the barley was in the air, the flax, right, was, was budding, but the wheat and the rye were not smitten for they weren't grown up yet. In other words, that little detail has first just a practical purpose, right? In, in other words, commentators point out most readers throughout history and certainly in ancient times were, uh, and among the original audience, were farmers. They would have had, again, keen interest in what sort of damage to the crops had been caused by the hail. So I think this aside has just that practical purpose. But as I mentioned earlier, it also has a timing update for us. In Egypt, flax and barley were harvested in February slash March, somewhere in there as early as February, as late as March, uh, a fact that provides a clear time of year or date for this part of the story. But wheat and spelt or rye, depending on your English translation, uh, were harvested in March to April, a full month later. So again, that's, and that's the time of the 10th plague and the exodus itself. Uh, so they were too small at this time to be permanently damaged by the hailstorm. But, you know, they're, they're going to provide an opportunity later for... Uh, another plague to wipe them out, <laughs> but <laughs> right? but anyways. So and so there's 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 that again interesting time frame that this when you kind of look at the math, um, there's uh, this overall framework comports well. You remember we talked about this back in chapter seven real quick, but in seven uh, verse twenty five, it gave us what probably was kind of a benchmark timing that each plague probably lasted about a week in duration, give or take. You know, maybe the hailstorm wasn't a full week. Um, but, you know, that was probably an average time 
Uh, we don't, it doesn't state that for every plague, but it does state it back in chapter 7, verse 25. But if you take that as a general average for the duration of a plague, or at least maybe the duration between you know, the start of two different plagues, then again, you fast forward, you're looking at a few months duration for all 10 plagues, right? For all of them to take place. You got thought? Uh, I was thinking because it, it kind of messed up the flax, and I was reading where the, um, the flax is what they used to make, like the fine linen for the priests, that are the Egyptian priests. That's right. Like a subtle, like, you know, smack down of that whole thing. Yes. Yes. Did you, everyone catch that? The, the flax was used in the fine garments of the priests. Right, that's good. That's a good point. Yeah. I like that little detail, Warren. Uh, just a side note: the uh, my brother lives in Emerald, Texas, and I was born there. And it's common in that area for hailstones to come, and they don't have to be very large. And people, most people who can afford it, will have their cars underneath a shelter of a of something, you know, a garage or something, because those storms can cause it so that the windows are broken. Mm-hmm. And that the dents on the cars are so bad that they totally car injured coming totally just because of the hailstone. And that's not the big one, those are the small ones that can come through. That's amazing, isn't it? Wow. So, so it's not hard to believe that if there's a storm that's wiping up spats and can come through, it can do this kind of thing. It can really wipe it. Oh, just all these little dents everywhere. Whoa. Whoa. That's, that's potent. That's power texture. That's texture. Yeah. Yeah. So, so there's some debate on that. Um, probably because when it says fire, what's the fire? You know, probably lightning. Yeah. Is what's going on. I don't know. I mean, I've seen some, you know, uh, I don't know, flying the craft board, you know, recreations of this in child textbooks where it's like fireballs, you know, that are kind of coming out like meteors, you know, kind of coming out. Um, and that could be the case. But when it says, um, and again, there's, it, it's, it's struggle, different translations struggle with translating the phrase when it says in verse 23 that the Lord sent thunder, hail, and fire that ran along upon the ground, you know, what's that? Right, and that's probably what it is, is it's darting, right? I mean, it's just lightning strikes everywhere. That's probably what's going on. Is there something with thunder and translation about God's voice? That? Yes, yeah, so that's actually, we see it in a lot of different ancient literature, but the scripture talks about that as well. Psalm 29 is one of the key places where it talks about, it equates thunder with the voice of God. Exactly, so it's like, you know, again, he's, He's shouting down, if you will, the uh, the Egyptian pantheon. It's a shock and awe, exactly. Yeah, that's a potent image. And it, wow, that's good stuff. All right, so but let's let's try and wrap this up. I'm totally out of time, but let's go back uh, and just look briefly at what happens. All right, so the plague happens. Right, it's leveled. It levels everything. Only the land of Goshen is spared, verse 26 tells us, right? So once again, God separates Israelites out from the plague itself. But verse 27 and following is Pharaoh's confession. Now, a couple quick points about this, uh, and then we'll, we'll wrap it up because well, I'm out of time. But 
This is the third time that Pharaoh has asked the prophets to intercede for him. It's the first time, however, that Pharaoh uses the, uh, the name of Yahweh, which is interesting in, in his contrast to, you know, chapter 5, verse 2, when he asks, who is Yahweh? Well, now, right, he said, well, entreat your God or something like that. But now we see in verse 28, he says, entreat Yahweh, which is an advance, you know, in his acknowledgement of Yahweh and who God is. Um, but I think it's interesting, Pharaoh's words in verse 28 represent a further concession uh, beyond what he had already said uh, when reeling from the effects of the, pl- the plague of flies back in chapter 8. In other words, he actually says in verse 28, okay, you guys can actually leave and you know, stay no longer. That's the first time he said that. All right, so I'm just, I'm just highlighting that the, there's cracks in the foundation, if you will, of the resolve of Pharaoh. Like, I mean, he's starting to try and, you know, I mean, there's several things in this confession account that we haven't seen thus far. He acknowledges Yahweh by name. He actually promises that they can go without wheeling and dealing, right? When he says, well, just the men can go. Or you can go, but leave your cattle, right? Now he just says, get out of here, right? You can all go. Now he reneges on that, but we do see his promise of it. Also, it's striking, perhaps the most striking feature of this section is uh, that Pharaoh should make a confession. He says in verse 27, I have sinned this time. The Lord, which again is probably, he's referring to just now, right? I mean, just in this one occurrence, right? In other words, it is kind of a confession. But, but nonetheless, it's, it's, uh, he declares, the Lord is righteous. <laughs> Yahweh is righteous. I and my people are wicked. All right, that is the most humble words that we have thus far seen out of the mouth of this, this Pharaoh. Uh, which in and of itself is it's profound. We're seeing an impact upon this, uh, this Pharaoh and what God is doing. But again, this is hugely important um, for, for Pharaoh in Egyptian culture that he would make any confession whatsoever. In fact, the, the ancient Egyptians, again, believed in the purity of their sovereign, that he was perfect, kind of like you know, the Catholic Pope, right? They viewed him as infallible. He couldn't make a mistake. In fact, we have... Um, uh, Egyptian records that describe this, that when people were to approach Pharaoh and they were commanded to go prostrate on the ground, to, uh, quote, smelling the earth, crawling on the ground, all the while invoking his, this perfect God and exalting his beauty, end quote. Right? That's the way Pharaoh was viewed. But the whole point is God is humiliating him and, and Pharaoh is starting to admit you know, his, his weakness, Right now, of course, his heart will be hardened once again, and he's not going to, uh, you know, keep any of his promises. But nonetheless, he does entreat uh, Moses to to pray. Moses does. He he goes and he does it. And the narrative just kind of quickly concludes after we have this confession account by Pharaoh. Um, and Moses, you know, as he leaves, he says, well, you know, I will go, I will pray, but as he says in verse 30, we already pointed this out, but he says, I know that you still don't fear Yahweh, right? In other words, I, I know this is just a sham. I know this is a false repentance, right? This is a, this is a cheap confession. It's not the real deal. But nonetheless, Moses keeps his word. He goes out of the city. Uh, he prays. One scholar pointed that out, the very fact that, you know, Moses, think about this, he says, all right, I'm going to go outside the city and then I'll pray. Well, first, probably to be, you know, well away from Pharaoh. So, you know, before he prays and the, the hail stops. But he's got to walk through the hailstorm to get out to, you know, to the edge of the city, right? I mean, it's like, 
Yeah, I mean, I, I mean, I'm just trying to visualize that, right? Everyone's running and cowering and hiding from this destructive hail. And Moses is just like marching through this storm and he gets to the edge of the city and then he prays, right? Lifts his hands towards heavens and boom, it all stops. I mean, that's like, wow. But again, the whole point is that, you know, Yahweh is, is the, the one in charge and he can separate the whole land of Goshen from this horrible plague. Or protect one man as he's walking through. Exactly, with a supernatural divine umbrella, right? <laughs> as he goes through. I mean, it's just remarkable. But nonetheless, uh, so God keeps his word, right? But Pharaoh reneges on his. So once again, we see which God do you want to serve? A God who keeps his word, keeps his promises, keeps his threats, and you are to fear the word of the Lord, or trust in a, you know, a false God whose word is worthless. Yes? Before you reach a conclusion, I was concerned about Pharaoh hardening his heart, <clears throat> where in the previous plague, God is beginning to harden Pharaoh's heart. Does that mean God is no longer hardening Pharaoh's heart on this one plague? Pharaoh? No, I mean, it's an interaction. <clears throat> so God is still hardening the heart. Okay. Yeah. But just kind of like the, the idea of it's been, you know, in tandem. So you know, Pharaoh hardened his heart, and now God's doing it. Sure. And so that made me think of the Egyptian servants. Yeah. That feared but didn't want to follow. Oh, yeah. Sure. Yep. They feared. They, 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 they believed. They knew what they were supposed to do. Yep. I.e. hide your cattle. Yep. Get in shelter. That's right. But there was no wanting to follow. There was no genuine <laughs> submission. Trust. Trust is a good word. They just trusted yep. he would follow through with what he was going to say. That's right. They were afraid of his threats, but they still weren't going to... You know, give them his heart or give him their heart and loyalty. That's good. That's right, the beginning of wisdom. That's this coming Sunday, right? Uh, Proverbs class, Proverbs 1 7, right? We're talking, that's the fear of the Lord, the beginning of wisdom. That's exactly right. Because it's, it's hugely important, and I think it's, it's often misunderstood, but it's actually the most common command in the Bible. First, the most common command 90 times in the Bible says, don't be afraid, fear not. 90 times. 88 times, the Bible says, fear God or fear the Lord. Yeah. So, the fear of the Lord is clean. That's right. Amen. It's a holy fear. That's exactly right. Did you have a thought? Do you have a hand? I was yeah. just thinking about um, what Paul says to the Romans um, about this, that um, in the book of Romans, um, that uh, he raised Pharaoh up for this mm-hmm. and I wonder if that was the hardening heart you know is it that's kind of what he meant to raise him up for for this purpose to show his power and that's right um, you know that's absolutely right yeah and that's what I mean when I, I kind of rephrase it by saying God's grandstanding this mm-hmm. you know is that God has designed this to use Pharaoh and I love to contrast this with like John 9 remember when they're walking by the disciples are walking by and there's a blind man and they, they turn to Jesus and they say, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he's born blind? And Jesus says, neither. But he was made this way so that the Son of Man might be glorified. In other words, that guy was born blind for that one point in time where Jesus would walk by and heal him and thereby demonstrate his power. You know, we'll think about that on the flip side. Pharaoh 
is being used by God to really be built up, right, to, to uh, this big stage, this, this, you know, he's put up on a pedestal for all the world to see his power and his, you know, rebellion against God only so that God can bring him down and bring him down hard. And he thinks it's all him, you know, like he doesn't understand, he doesn't even know that's right. He, he has zero power in it. That's right. And he doesn't, quote unquote, fear the word of the Lord. Exactly. He, he thinks his word is, you know, where the power lies. But he's soon to learn, right? <laughs> that it's, it's the word of Yahweh. That's good. Oh, amen. Yes. I, I think they wanted to, them to go away because... Um, gods in that time only had control over certain areas, you know. The Egyptian gods only had control over Egypt. So they figured Yahweh only has control over the Hebrews, so get them out of here with their god and to leave us alone and we can go back to our gods. Yes. No, I actually, I th- that's an excellent point. And I actually, uh, I think you're spot on, is that, you know, and there's actually, I'll, I'll get into it later, there's a cool archaeological discovery um, that associates uh, exactly what you said, that, that Yahweh, it's actually an inscription, a Yahweh inscription, yud heh vav Yahweh inscription associating him as a tribal deity to the Hebrews. And it's an Egyptian inscription. So it's, the point is, I think you're exactly right, they viewed him as a tribal deity that they probably were hoping that if we just get the Hebrews out of here, then Yahweh will leave and he'll leave us alone. And, and then we can go back to our gods. He will no longer have power over us if we get him out of the land. And we'll get him out of the land by sending his, you know, his, away his people. Absolutely. Yes. Yep. Yes, that's a good parallel. That's a great parallel. Did everyone catch that? Remember when, yeah, Jesus cast the demons into the pigs, the, the Gadarenes, and then they didn't want Jesus there anymore, right? For, in other words, economic reasons, they wanted him to leave the country. But it's, I think it's, that's a good parallel to what we're talking about. The Egyptians are wanting to get rid of the Hebrews. Why? Well, to get rid of Yahweh. Yeah, right, and we don't have anything left, right? I mean, our economic, you know, our economy's in ruins and et cetera. That's right. That's right. Wow. But that's the whole thing is, right, you know, we need to be submitting to Yahweh, following Jesus, recognizing his power, right, fearing the word of the Lord. Right? That's the whole point of the message. That's good. Yes? So there was fallout, though. Even after they left, Yahweh's power didn't leave. I mean, they, there was significant damage to the land, to the people financially. A lot of the treasure went with the people. Mm-hmm. Not only that, mm-hmm. there wasn't, it wasn't actually that long Yeah. We're going to return to these gods, and it actually becomes a fairly Christian nation for a moment. Yep. So it, it never recovers from this. Right. No. It. This is. Uh, it's another whole subject that I. But I would encourage you, because you're exactly right. It's fun to zoom out, because the Bible doesn't talk. I mean, it talks a lot about Egypt, but it doesn't talk a lot about what happened to Egypt after the Exodus. Right, I mean, it, it, Egypt basically disappears from the record for a little while, and then they, they they pop up later in the narrative, like a couple hundred years later. Um, 
But what happens is you have, you do, you have a pharaoh. I think it's ugh, Akhenaten, I think, is the guy who, he, and he, he was really soon after the Exodus. If we date the Exodus according, you know, to what we've, uh, you know, the case I've built for the timing of the Exodus, most likely, then it was one of the next couple of emperors or pharaohs that uh, he does away with the Egyptian pantheon. And he tries to get the Egyptians to worship one god. Yep, and he, he founds right, Heliopolis, the, the city of the sun. Uh, the Greeks later call it that. But um, he, he's, it, it's, it's a really interesting episode. But then he, and then it doesn't ultimately last, right? Because there's, there's just a lot of turmoil and, and the people go back to the Egyptian gods, but then they become, yeah, hugely Christian nation for a while, you know, later. Yep. I mean, there's just a lot of interesting, a lot of Jewish influence actually back there. Uh, during the Ptolemaic period. I mean, there's just, it's fascinating when you start looking at how Egypt was never the same after this. That's exactly right. Yeah. So I think Yahweh made his point, right? <laughs> yeah, and he didn't leave. He is still sovereign, right? They, yeah, their little puny paganism way of thinking doesn't quite work. Yahweh is the sovereign, right? Remember, he says, in all the earth, right? He says, I want you to know that I'm sovereign in all the earth. That's good. That's right. That's right. Egypt becomes a refuge for Jesus, right? Fleeing Herod's tirade. That's right. Stay tuned. All right. Well, let's close in prayer and we'll be done for this evening. Father, thank you again for this time. Lord, we thank you for. Uh, Exodus chapter 9, Lord, the, the account of this seventh plague of hail and, and how you displayed your power and your sovereignty, Lord, as you do through each of these plagues. And yet we ask that you would help us to learn what many of the Egyptians and many of the Hebrews failed to learn, uh, namely that, that, Lord, we ought fear you to know and believe and follow your word, Lord, to submit to you, to be loyal to you, uh, that, Lord, you are the only God worthy of our worship and our allegiance. And we ask that you would help us, Lord, to know that, to believe that, to live that. We ask your blessing, Lord, as we go our separate ways. Keep us safe as we go out on the, uh, the roads. Lord, we just pray that you would bring us back together on uh, Sunday and as we just fellowship one with another around your word. We just ask your continued blessing in that. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.